A decade after the 2011 revolution that led to the end of longtime dictator Zin El Abedin Ben Ali's rule, unrest continues in Tunisia. In January, citizens took to the streets to protest state repression, corruption and poverty. Officers clashed with demonstrators in cities across Tunisia for a second night as protests against the police and economic crisis continued. The demonstrations began after a video posted on social media showed a police officer shouting and pushing a shepherd whose sheep had entered the local government headquarters. Tunisia has struggled to deal with the spillover effects from the COVID-19 pandemic. More than 6,000 people have succumbed to the virus, hospitals are near capacity, and the nation's tourism-related economy is at a standstill. How has endemic corruption and uncertainty since 2011 contributed to Tunisia's current environment? How will the country's flailing economy impact irregular migration in the year to come? In this week's episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, we're in North Africa, covering irregular migration and Tunisia's escalating political crisis. I'm your host, Lindim Tongana. Many of the demonstrations in Tunisia at the start of the year took place in working-class neighborhoods. Citizens accused the government of bad governance, corruption, and favoring a political class that is disconnected from the needs of ordinary people. Police response to protests has fostered renewed anger. More than 1,000 people were detained in January. A young man's death was also blamed on a blow from a tear gas canister released by police. People are protesting about higher rates of unemployment. They're protesting about poverty. It's really getting difficult in the country now. Hiba Klili is an interpreter, researcher and social activist. And now there are more demands adding on, the releasing the people who were arrested. For example, people who are arrested for other things other than the protests, maybe smoking cannabis. or There are a lot of things now people are adding on in regards to liberties and freedom of speech as well. Hiba, can you explain why the protests this year seem more intense than previous years, both in terms of what protesters are doing and also in terms of how the state is responding? It's been 10 years since the revolution. Every year we say this is the year, it's going to improve, the situation is going to get better. And now people are just struggling to survive mainly. So people are more determined to have their voices heard, are more angry and frustrated. There is a new generation growing up in these really harsh conditions and feeling also that they have no future in the country, thus they want to make their voices heard. In regards to the government and the heavy hand, while the unions, the police unions are saying, hey, we know you cannot really do much anymore, or they understand now that these people have nowhere to go eventually. So if they oppress, it will be forgotten in three or four months and everything will be the same. Plus, this government is really fighting to a power struggle going on now in the government. Mishishi is the prime minister and the acting minister of interior does not want any disturbance to his reshuffle in the government. Can you describe how the pandemic has affected things like employment and the economy in general, specifically for young people? 
the first confinement, it was a good procedure by the government. I didn't think it anticipated this impact on the economy, on people's lives, because there is a lot of informal sectors that have no way of depending on the government for help. And the help that came from the government is also very low. A lot of cafes, shops, a lot of businesses closed down, thus, you know, letting go a lot of workers. People stayed at home, the businesses slowed down. The informal sector, you have the freelancers here in Tunisia, they cannot work, they cannot depend on the government. A lot of other informal sectors, people who are getting paid under the state, and like they don't have contracts, uh, workers that don't have contracts in cafes, etc. So, yeah, it made it way more difficult and also because there is a, a lot of financial strain on the government also to provide health care, etc., but it's getting expensive. People are dying and uh, medical care is getting expensive. If you cannot find a place in the public sector, you have to go private, etc. So it's really, it really impacted the economy and it's impacted the whole world. But Tunisia, the economy was already really suffering. So add this to it, it's bad here. Amid struggles in the streets, Tunisia's government is also in a state of unrest. Political leadership is currently divided as parliament waits to confirm Prime Minister Hishem Meshishi's new ministers in a cabinet reshuffle. Heber describes what is at the heart of this current political tension. It's who gets to have more power. And now the Meshishi made this reshuffle to change 11 ministers. And he did not consult uh, the president with the constitution recommends that he does. And he went to the parliament to get this reshuffle voted on, which is not really the constitutional law. The constitutional law says that they have to swear the oath in front of the president, but it's a parliamentary procedure for them to be voted in in the parliament. So now the president says that he will not invite the ministers, especially the ones that, uh, the four ones that have corruption suspicions about them. Uh, One has corruption suspicions and three are accused of conflict of interest. And the president says he wants to wear them in. And now we find ourselves in the constitutional crisis and we don't have a constitutional court to have the final say in these matters. So we don't really know what will this lead to. And trouble in the street does not help this government. When you talk about the grievances that are driving people to the streets to protest, it can almost feel as though you're talking about 2011. How does that make you feel as a social activist that perhaps very little has changed in the past decade? We had such high hopes, but we knew it's a long way, but it's been getting worse and worse. And now we are threatened even, okay, we were saying at least, at least we have our freedom of expression. We can at least say what we don't like. We can protest, we can write, we can we have freedom of press, etc. And now they're persecuting journalists in the street. They are arresting people for Facebook statuses. So even the freedom of speech is now being threatened. In addition to other harsher measures that are really used to, like other laws that are very backward and used to oppress the people uh, instead of helping them. And uh, of course, the economic situation is not getting any better. There is a lot, a lot of corruption. This prime minister is defying everybody that thinks that these ministers have corruption suspicions or they are suspected of being corrupt or have conflict of interest, but I don't think he cares. Like the, there is no real political will to change or to fight corruption in any sense. So this is the last despair attempt to make things work. But let's see. Let's see how it works. That was Hubert Lili, an interpreter, researcher and social activist.
The more things change, the more they stay the same, or so it seems in Tunisia. The past decade has not delivered the economic promise of the Arab Spring. Unemployment has risen sharply, the economy is collapsing, and social and political tensions are at an all-time high. Not surprisingly, this has allowed the illicit economy to thrive. In response to hardening economic prospects, Tunisia is now seeing new levels of irregular migration not seen since 2011. So if you look at the number of interceptions by Tunisian authorities, combined with the number of interceptions by Italian authorities, you actually come to about 26,000 irregular migrants coming from Tunisia. Now, of course, this doesn't tell the entire story. These are only the people that are being caught. So if you look back to January of 2020, there were already very surprising atypical rises in regular migration that were being reported. Matt Herbert is a research manager for the North Africa and Sahel Observatory of the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. So during the period that Tunisia was in a total lockdown during last spring, you saw very limited irregular migration. But as soon as that lockdown ended, right around May, June, July, August, it jumped to very, very, very substantial numbers and stayed high throughout much of the fall before slowly, slowly diminishing. Even with that diminishment, the level of irregular migration in December uh, and in January of this year is actually far in excess of what we've seen in previous years. Demographically speaking, Matt, who primarily is on the move and why during this period in particular? So overwhelmingly, irregular migration from Tunisia to Europe involves Tunisian nationals. Somewhere around 80% of all interceptions that are being made by the Tunisian government, by the Italian government, involve Tunisians. And these Tunisians come from all over the country, not just the coastal regions like Bizerte and Tunis and Sfax and Sousse, but also the interior governorates such as Tatooine or Sibuzi or Gesclin. And so it really is uh, a mass movement from all over the country that comprises this, this current outflux of, of migrants. It is important to flag, however, that the number of foreign migrants transiting through Tunisia on their way to Europe has also increased. So in years past, this was very much not the case. You'd see a couple of hundred foreign migrants, primarily from West Africa, that were intercepted leaving from Tunisia and slowly been picking up. But this year it jumped substantially. Close to 3,000 primarily West African migrants were, were intercepted. Can you explain some of the drivers of the spike in irregular migration? First is the impact of COVID-19 on neighboring countries. So if you look at the impact in Algeria, for example, which hosts a very large irregular migrant community from Sub-Saharan Africa, it's had a catastrophic impact on irregular migrants working construction there and other often informal trades. And what this led to was a, a movement into Tunisia. So throughout the spring and the summer, you saw hundreds of irregular migrants reportedly coming over the border from Algeria into Tunisia on a monthly basis, something that really has not been seen in any sort of substantial way before. The other issue is actually the economic impact of COVID-19 on irregular migrants that have been living in Tunisia. So Tunisia has slowly seen an increase in its largely sub-Saharan 
uh, population over the course of the last five years or so. Now, nobody really knows exactly how large this population is. Some say 10,000, some estimates place it closer to 75,000, but much of this population is similarly in a situation of precarity. They work in restaurants, they work in construction sites, these sorts of industries that were directly impacted by the economic closures linked to COVID-19. And so for many of these individuals, interviews by the Global Initiative suggest they, having lost their jobs or lost access to, to income, they chose to attempt to depart from Europe, essentially as, as a means of economically surviving. And how does irregular migration from Tunisia take place? What law enforcement weaknesses are exploited by human smugglers? So human smugglers are certainly a key issue in Tunisia. If you look at their, their spacing around the country, they operate nearly along the entire littoral, though they're concentrated largely in and around the government of Medellin, Sfax, and Nabal. And the first key thing to, to remember about these smugglers is that they're generally small scale. So this is not a Libya-type situation where you have large, well-known smugglers that are moving hundreds of migrants per week. Rather, these are individuals that operate in small groups, say, you know, one to, to four actors comprise a typical human smuggling network in Tunisia. And they generally are moving a couple of dozen migrants a week, uh, if not a couple of dozen migrants per month. Now, the process of finding a smuggler is rather interesting in Tunisia. It used to be that it largely occurred via word of mouth. You would have to seek out essentially a, an intermediary, somebody who knew the, the smuggler before you could get access to them. That's changed slightly due to the internet. And people are now able to get information on where smugglers operate, on how to get in contact with them. To what extent is the ongoing unrest in Tunisia acting as a driver of migration for youth? I don't think that the protests are so much acting as a driver of migration as much as they spring from the same root. So if you look at the factors that are driving many young Tunisians and in many cases, not so young Tunisians. We're seeing an increase also in, in women and children and older people and entire families that are leaving. A lot of it is frustration with difficult economic circumstances, with the politics of the country seeming to be unresponsive to the real needs of the people, and ultimately to, to the sense that many prospective migrants have that there just really isn't a valid opportunity to make it in Tunisia anymore. And I think if you look at the, the factors that have driven protesters into the streets, it's much the same. So I fully expect that some of those that are in the streets now attempting to affect some sort of political change in the country will, in months to come, if nothing substantially changes, also potentially be on boats leaving the country. So it comes from the same population. Is it possible to see at the moment what impact these protests are having on illicit activities? It's difficult to say at present. To the best of our knowledge, there no gap has appeared yet. So there's no indication that the protests have gotten to a level of severity that have led to significant redeployments of security forces from around the country, say from the borders to, to cities. 
So I don't anticipate that there would be any substantial impact, you know, be it petrol smuggling or drug trafficking or any of the other informalist activities that take place across Tunisia's borders. Now, if the protests were to increase and if they were to be sustained, there's, there's the possibility there could be some impact, but I don't think that it would be a wholesale change. It would be much more likely to be, to be impactful around the margins. What have these past 10 years meant for the country's illicit economy? Well, we've seen the, the country's underground economy uh, grow substantially over the last 10 years. And even more importantly, it's democratized. So if you look at the, the sort of informal economic system that predominated under the Ben Ali regime, so the, the dictator that was overthrown in 2011, it was very tightly controlled with specific individuals, oftentimes those that were very closely linked to the, the ex-president's family, essentially profiting from illicit economic activity across the, the country's borders and dictating who could and who could not become involved in it. And so with the, the 2011 revolution, all of a sudden, youth living in border areas, and some that were not so young, had the opportunity to become involved in, in a regular economic activity. And I'd like to flag that this isn't arms trafficking and drug smuggling, though that also has increased. Rather, really what we're talking about is the smuggling of petrol and the smuggling of food, clothes, you know, basic uh, sundry items. And this grew substantially both along the border with Algeria as well as with uh, Libya. Now, what we've seen since the advent of COVID-19 and the increased attention to borders that that pandemic has brought, the fear by the Tunisian government that some of those coming across the border could be infectious, could bring in the disease, and so a heightened border security uh, effort on their part, is that it's uh, tossed large swaths of the country's informal economy into what I think we could term a crisis. It significantly impacted those small traders, those that were moving a little bit of petrol or a little bit of food across the borders, while largely leaving unimpacted the much more nefarious networks, so the drug trafficking networks, so those that are uh, involved in other highly illicit commodities. And so in some ways, it's actually contributed to, to challenges around stability and, and economic opportunity in, in borderland areas that I think, you know, ultimately, you know, this is part and parcel of a larger economic crisis facing the country and one that's led us to this present moment with people in the street. That was Matt Herbert, Research Manager for the North Africa and Sahel Observatory of the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Alongside current discontent in Tunisia lies the illicit economy. The nation is flanked by Algeria to the west and Libya to the east. Algeria has refused any form of military intervention since the Arab Spring protests. In order to support security in the region, Algeria has been cooperating with its Tunisian neighbor. But this has not put an end to border smuggling. Marginalized communities on both sides of the border have developed parallel economies. 
smuggling has taken roots in uh, in these border communities and for some families it is a career you know from one generation to the next so the, the central state has no other alternative than to let it be but what i explain in my paper is that this laissez-faire if i may say is a rational solution it is you know from the perspective of local authorities smuggling functions as a safety valve uh, that relieves some of the economic pressure felt by the inhabitants of algeria's and tunisia's neglected provinces and moreover what i argue in my paper is that smugglers enhance the security services effort to keep the dreaded triple threat of drugs weapon and Dr. Dalia Ghanem is an Algerian political scientist and resident scholar at the Malcolm H. Kerr Carnegie Middle East Center. For some researcher, this might be a paradox, but it is not. Why? Because when I talk to smugglers, many of them said, we are the good guys in the sense that we do not do traffic of drugs or a human or weapon. We just gasoline and gas and clothes, which they call shifun, and that's it. But whenever we see jihadists or weapon or drugs, this is bad for business because we do know from a fact that the security forces are going to crack down on us. And hence, uh, what is bad for business for us, it's bad also for them. So basically, there is this tacit alliance forge between smugglers and local authorities that blurs the distinction between legal and illegal and erases points along the border between Algeria and Tunisia. While many focus on the role of men in Algeria and Tunisia's illicit border economy, women also play a part. For the women whom I met, they are exclusively handling items associated with their gender. So basically, they smuggle cosmetics, perfume, serving dishes, cooking tools, kitchen accessories, fabrics, and household linen. This specialization or this speciality helps them avoid competition with men, but helps them also in a way make their activity accepted to the broader community, to family and to the male members. So what they do is that that women purchase this good at wholesale or retail markets situated in urban or semi-urban areas in Algeria Northeast and one of these markets is what is called Souq Dubai it is located in the city of Ulma and so they go there or they go in Ain Al-Fakroun or Ain Melila or Um Lubwagi when there is such uh, markets and they actually buy their product and once a woman smuggler has amassed the desired quantity of good she sets off with a hired driver for Tunisia. And so we are talking here about really small-scale smugglers. We are not talking about big-scale smugglers. So small-scale smugglers save time and money by heading to markets in the nearby towns of Qasrin and Gafsa. And this is very important when you are a woman because this means that you do not have to stay in Tunisia overnight. And something that is especially important to those women with domestic and childcare responsibilities. So 
as one smuggler told me once, she said, I book my cab with the help of my husband. I cross the border and come back the same day. And she said that basically she never sleep there uh, because she has family there. But she gives her children to her mother during the day. She crossed to Tunisia and then she come back. Can you expand on how women deal with customs and border officials? Do women's experiences differ from that of men? The relationship of women with the customers is not as that of men. So let me explain. Maybe one of the most important things is that women smuggling is not as informal as it seems. It is rather organized and elaborate. Uh, so the strategies that women smugglers use uh, show actually the complex interplay women have with state regulation and borderland official. So like their male counterpart, and this is one of the similarities that I found, is that women pay what they call settlements. Okay, they call it settlements or call them bribes or call them jesters, as they call them sometimes. But they do pay these settlements to several people throughout their smuggling operation. First of all, they have to pay the driver. And then they have to give money to the driver if a, a risk, because he is taking the risk to transport the, the products. And then they gave money to the custom agent on both sides of the border so that they turn a blind eye to their activity. And if they have arranged a pickup, the unofficial porter who transports the goods from the car on the Algerian side of the border to a client waiting on the Tunisian side. So basically, they have to pay all these people. And all these are called settlements. But settlements with custom official are negotiated ahead of time by phone usually. And together with the other settlements, they significantly slash the profit margin for women. And the majority of whom have limited means, I have to say. And this is very different than their male counterpart. Considering the dynamic between the financial costs of this trade, are women achieving the same level of financial success as men in the illicit economy? Some of them heard that, for instance, some of them achieved a great success and they were able to invest their money in, um, in houses and so on and so forth. But most of the time, these women, they use their material benefits for actually securing a livelihood because, for instance, most of the time, the husband doesn't earn enough for the entire family to subsist. And so most women smugglers invest their earnings on the family sphere, constructing, enhancing, and furnishing the house, for instance. They contribute to school-related expenditure for their kids. They organize lavish wedding, and this is something very familiar to the east of the country where weddings are very, very, very important, and they like, you know, doing lavish weddings. In fact, in the entire Arab world. This is not a cliche. But this is what they, they invest their earnings in. So basically, they help their family or they help the husband actually sustain the family. There are, of course, you know, some of them who really succeeded, but I would say that these are not the, the rule. Rather, they are the exception. So how has the coronavirus pandemic affected women smugglers? 
I don't know if you heard of this story, but at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, there was some 40 Algerian citizens who wanted to cross the border from Libya to Algeria, and they were literally two meters from the Algerian territory. And these people stayed 45 days outside in the dark, you know, in the night with their families and their babies because the Algerian wouldn't let them in because they needed to do a security check on them. And this lasts 45 days. So this story is just to make people understand that the borders are really sealed and it seems very, very complicated to, to circumvent them. Now, for having met these people, I can say that they have a level of imagination and entrepreneurship uh, that was beyond anything that I met. So I do believe that uh, they adapted because really in some of these regions, it is really important to insist that these people as one smuggler told me, he said, look at me. And I met this guy in, in Qasrin. He said, look at me. I'm 25 and I smell gasoline the entire day. Who wishes for himself that? I am not doing that because I want it. I am doing that because I have no other alternative. So in my paper, I explained that. I don't want to make them heroes, but I'm just explaining that these people smuggling, um, uh, which emerged as an integral part of Algeria's economic and security development is also for these borderlanders an alternative for a country uh, or for a region that is actually that doesn't have anything to offer. Lastly, how is the illicit economy challenging traditional gender norms in the region? The fact that women has been able to enter a domain that was uh, typically male, uh, a male domain, is something that is huge. Of course, uh, some people told me, well, women has been doing that for a while in Algiers, for instance, when in the 90s, women from Algiers and Oran uh, used to go to Turkey and, you know, buy clothes and bring them back here and sell. Yes, okay, but these women, we are talking about another region that is not a big city. We are not talking about big cities like Constantine, Algiers and Oran. We are not talking about the same kind of women. We are talking about a region that is pretty conservative and women have been having a very, very conservative and very gendered position. In fact, in this region, for instance, in Alwenza and in Darush, you don't see women driving a car. It's just, it doesn't happen. Even if their smuggling activities, you know, reinforces uh, women's association with domestic uh, affair, I do believe that it enables them to avoid competing with male, but ultimately to not also antagonize male smugglers because they do need them. You know, when a woman have to order a cab, she needs her male kin to do it and to arrange it for her. So they are very rational actors. And I was really impressed by their capacity to just be cognizant of their position, but of being able to say, I will transform this step by step. And today you have men who admit that their wives 
do that and they have no problem with that so i think it's it's a, it's an achievement for them because you know one of them told me for instance today i am in a position when i am no longer waiting for him meaning the husband to provide I can also put food in his mouth. She said it like that, literally. So I think there is a cultural, small cultural revolution there. That was Dr. Dalia Ghanem, an Algerian political scientist and resident scholar at the Malcolm H. Kerr Carnegie Middle East Center. January protests have been a tradition in Tunisia for the past 10 years. Citizens have called for the same demands year after year. By all accounts, things are getting worse. Exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic and struggles for political power, Tunisia has a long road ahead in 2021. Here's Matt Herbert again. 2021, unfortunately, we'll we'll see significant economic challenges continue in the country. The likelihood of a, a significant rebound in tourism, I think, is is receding at the moment, unfortunately. While there are vaccines on the horizon, unfortunately, this rise of variants in COVID-19 seems to be pushing back the return to the old normal, as it were. Now, when it comes to politics, I think that the politics also seem on a course to continue to be difficult and contentious. The slow-moving political crisis between the prime minister and president seems unlikely to to add in the near future, absent some sort of significant improvement in the situation in Tunisia. The economic situation, the social situation, the political situation, we're likely to see a level of irregular migration in 2021 that either approximates or exceeds that that we saw in 2020. So it looks that from our view right now, like there's to be significant movement by both Tunisian as well as foreign irregular migrants from Tunisia's shore towards Europe. But what happens in Tunisia also affects its neighbours. Algeria and Tunisia have close ties, especially when it comes to the illicit economy. And while women's involvement in cross-border smuggling has triggered a small revolution, security and stability might be the most important elements for lasting change. That's all for this episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy. A special thanks to our guests, Hiba Tlili, Matt Herbert, and Dr. Dalia Ganem. If you want to learn more about today's episode, visit globalinitiative.net and read the GI's ongoing monitoring of the political economy of human smuggling in Libya and the Sahel. While you're there, have a listen to some of our other podcasts, including last week's episode on the assassination of gangster Ernie Solomon, violence in South Africa's Western Cape, and illegal gold mining in Zimbabwe. Please take the time to leave a review, subscribe, and share the podcast on social media. It helps us get noticed and improve the show. Until next time, this podcast was produced by Alexandria Sahai Williams. I'm Lindim Tongana. Thanks for listening.